When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. I'd like to introduce one of my favorite voices among anyone I've ever interviewed. Well, my name is Steve McDaniel, and I grew up I'm seven generations in this community here at what we call Parker's Crossroads. Parker's Crossroads, Tennessee, is a small town of 284 people, but it has a big history. This place factored in the life of one of the most controversial figures in all of American history, the Confederate General Nathan Bedford Forrest, who would become the first Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. Steve has lived in Parker's Crossroads for most of his life and is heavily involved in preserving its history, as well as the history of his home state. I'm active in uh, the American Battlefield Trust, uh, the Tennessee Civil War Preservation Association, Tennessee State Library and Archives. I just came off the uh, Tennessee State Museum Commission, and so I'm really interested in the history. I served 30 years in the Tennessee House of Representatives, and I retired in 2018. I didn't run again, but I have an opportunity there to do some good work toward preservation in the future here in this state. I'm the city manager for the town or the city of Parker's Crossroads, and we manage the 370 acres of core battlefield that we've saved here at the Parker's Crossroads Battlefield where the battle was fought December 31st, 1862. This was early in the Civil War, and the Union was just finding its footing after a surprising string of defeats at the hand of the Confederate forces in 1861. It became clear that this would not be the short, uneventful war most of the North had expected. In 1862, Ulysses S. Grant led Union armies west and south to major victories at Fort Donelson and in the Battle of Shiloh. In December of that year, Forrest was sent on a sabotage mission to destroy Grant's supply line and limit his supply to make war in the south. Forrest's raids were so devastatingly successful that it took the North three full months to repair the damage. Union armies then pursued Forrest back to Middle Tennessee. And they finally caught up with him here at Parker's Crossroads and tried to uh, cut him off from his retreat out of West Tennessee after this very successful raid. Grant had to delay his move on Vicksburg by three months because Forrest had destroyed so well the rail line into Mississippi. And so that's why the battle was fought here. He, he escaped capture 
He got caught between two forces, roughly each the size of his own here in the Battle of Parker's Crossroads, but he successfully escaped back and recrossed the Tennessee River into Middle Tennessee. The battle at Parker's Crossroads lasted five hours, involving four to 6,000 Federal and 2,000 Confederate cavalry. I asked Steve for a quick summary of how the battle unfolded. Forrest was uh, looking for a way to get around the Federal troops. He, he started his raid on December the 11th out of Columbia, Tennessee, which is in the middle part of Tennessee, south of Nashville. He crosses the Tennessee River at a little town called Clifton. He's moving west across the Tennessee River, and this is when he begins his raid. He, he finds a skirmish or an engagement in Lexington, which is just 10 miles south of here, but he's going to make a big loop. He's going to Jackson, Tennessee, and he's going to move north up the Mobile and Ohio Railroad to destroy Grant's line of supply there. And so it takes him several days to, to do that. And Forrest has completed his mission on by Christmas, December 25th. He started on December the 11th, but December 25th, he's destroyed the rail line, which delays Grant's move into Mississippi by three months. So he's looking to escape back to Middle Tennessee. He, he counts for two nights northwest of here, about six miles. The Federals had finally been, get, been given permission to start pursuing Forrest, and they were waiting. General Union General Jeremiah Sullivan was in command of the West Tennessee troops in Tennessee, and he, so he starts pursuing Forrest. Forrest is camped six miles northwest of here. The Federal 2,000 are camped five miles north of here, and then there's another 2,000 troops 10 miles beyond those federal troops. So on the morning of December 31st, each army is trying to get to Parker's Crossroads. It's a crossroads. Forrest is hoping he, that he gets through the crossroads first, but he didn't didn't make it. The federals come in under uh, Colonel uh, Cyrus Livingston Dunham, who was in command of the 50th Indiana Volunteer Infantry along with the 122nd Illinois Infantry, the 39th Iowa Infantry. So he has about a brigade, about 1,500, 2,000 men, and he tries to cut Forrest off. The engagement begins about a, a mile northwest of here. And so as Forrest approaches that position, he sets his artillery up. The Federals go out to test his strength from there. And then Forrest, after a two-hour battle at that he pushes them back to the crossroads here to a place called Parker's Crossroads. And then they fight for a couple of hours. Forrest is surprised. He sends out four companies of, of his troopers north to impede or at least warn him of, of Colonel John W. Fuller's, the Union. The Northern commanders is in command of the Ohio Brigade. And so the Ohio Brigade comes onto the field Forrest is caught between Cyrus L. Dunham's brigade and the Ohio Brigade, and he gives command when he's asked, uh, they come up to the general and, and tell him, said, we got these federal infantry in our rear, and the general can't believe it. So he rides out there himself because he, he knew he had sent these four companies to warn him, 
and he had had no warning. He was taking his time. He was whipping Colonel Cyrus L. Dunham's uh, troops with his artillery. Forrest had uh, 10 pieces of artillery, and he was just slowly surrounding the uh, Dunham's troops. And so these people come in behind him, and he says, uh, can't believe this. So he rides out there, and one of the federal infantrymen puts the rifle on him and says, General, uh, I demand you surrender. And so General Forrest says, well, I've already surrendered, and my men are forming up out here in this cotton field. They're going to stack arms and surrender here at Reverend John Parker's house is where they were. We're going to stack arms here at this man's woodpile. And they let Forrest just ride off. And so Forrest gets back to his line of men, and he gathers up a scratch force. Some, one account has 75, another says 125. And they said, well, what are we going to do, General? And he said, we're going to charge them both ways. We're going to charge the ones south of us that we almost captured, which they would have surrendered in a little a bit longer, but they wouldn't surrender because they knew the old Howard Brigade was still back there and might save them. So Forrest makes a charge. He takes the old Howard Brigade off of the an offensive move and puts them on a defensive mood long enough to remove most of his uh, artillery and his mounted cavalry from the field. He lost uh, 300 men that were captured by the Federals when they surprised him. He came in behind him, along with several other 100 men and a lot of casualties and so forth. So then Forrest leaves the field, and he starts recrossing the Tennessee River the next day, which is about uh, 35 miles from here. And But he successfully escapes, and uh, the Federals sat here, sit here all night on the night of December the 31st thinking, well, he's moving off to the east or off the right flank of Dunham's position and he's going to attack us the next morning. Well, Forrest, his, his mission had been accomplished and so he had destroyed that rail line delaying Grant's move into Mississippi. All he was interested in was getting back to safety in Middle Tennessee and he did that the next day. They tried to catch up to him later. They sent out some other troops to to impede his crossing there at the Tennessee River, but they were unsuccessful. And so basically that's what took place here on December 31st, 1862, during the American Civil War. Forrest left his camps about six miles northwest of here, and at 9 o'clock in the morning, the, the Federals send out they hold some regiments and two regiments in reserve, but they send the rest of them out to test for his strength. And so they fight for two hours. He pushes them back to the crossroads, through the crossroads, and south of the crossroads. And you're actually on the battlefield here at the visitor center. The land on which the visitor center sits today was an artillery position during the battle. And so the battlefield. It's on the National Register of Historic Places, and it has 1,400 acres in the National Register designation. And we've saved 370 acres of what we term core battlefield. And core battlefield is heavy fighting took place. And we don't know if we'll be able to buy more land, or at least uh, we got an area where we need to buy a... uh, a conservation easement from the property owner so they don't develop the property and they just have to leave it in farmland. A conservation easement 
means the private property owner retains ownership of their land, but agrees not to build anything on it that would compromise the integrity of its archaeological or historical value. Even 160 years out from the Civil War, relic hunters and archaeologists are still finding artifacts and even bodies on battlefields, like the one at Parker's Crossroads. We had the state archaeologists come and do an archaeological survey, and he chose to dig at this one particular site, which turned out to be Union, and did three excavations. And after the first excavation, I went to, to the National Archives and found where in July of 1867, they exhumed 29 uh, remains out of this burial site. And on that first archaeological dig that was done by the state archaeologist, he uncovered, he discovered one soldier that was uh, still there. They didn't, didn't find him. And his, his head was only, his skull was only 22 inches below the ground, so the, the grave was very shallow. In the rush and confusion of war, graves were often dug at shallower depths than is conventional, and also insufficiently marked and documented. So a lot of those graves got lost and uh, still remain unknown. I know at least two out here on this battlefield that were probably Confederate. Their remains were found by relic hunters who were using their metal detectors to discover artifacts from the battle. And so what they picked up on were the bullets, the balls or mini balls, whatever had killed them. And they'd find them, and then they'd dig into the grave. And, well, one fellow told me, he said, the bones were like crackers. When you crush a cracker, he said that's how the bones were under where he discovered two the remains here at Parker's Crossroads. But before you grab your metal detector and head out to the nearest Civil War battlefield, there's something you should know. Relic hunting on protected battlefields like this one is highly illegal. It's illegal for people to hunt on the state property or any property owned by the city of Parker's Crossroads. People get permission from some landowners adjacent to the battlefield, and if the landowner gives them permission, then they still find some artifacts. Not a lot left here because the good metal detectors came out in the 1970s, and they've improved them over the years, and and people like to relic hunt, but you cannot. It's illegal to hunt on state on this battlefield here at Parker's Crossroads or any national battlefields. I think when I pulled into Parker's Crossroads and walked into the visitor center, my jaw just about hit the floor when I saw the face of Nathan Bedford Forrest painted along the walls alongside different quotes and tributes. You don't have to know anything about the Civil War to recognize that face or to know that name. Forrest was, of course, a driving force in the growth and the promotion of the Ku Klux Klan. So, after discussing the battle and its significance, I asked Steve to say a word about Forrest and his legacy. He was the first Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan that was created to uh, handle both black and white people who didn't want to live up to their responsibilities at home. And so they began to do things that weren't good. And so Forrest resigned his position as the Grand Wizard and disbanded the Ku Klux Klan. Well, the Ku Klux Klan has come back many times in different ways over the years, but Forrest has that black eye, that black spot on his record 
where he was the first Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. And then at Fort Pillow, where he allegedly massacred a lot of African-American troops at Fort Pillow, is another spot on his record that people like to pick at. And, but there was a congressional hearing in Washington, D.C. following the war, which cleared him of any wrongdoing at Fort Pillow. But, you know, people like good stories and they like to carry on and, and still talk about Forrest. I admire Forrest for being such a leader. He was a natural-born tactician, had a third-grade education, was a millionaire when the war started. And, of course, he was a, a broken man after the war and died in 1877 in Memphis, Tennessee. Why are so many dogs suffering from health issues? Actress Katherine Heigl, who's helped over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, says she's seeing more issues with dogs' joints, odors, and health than ever before. After doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health, their food. What she discovered is that the way many dog foods are made can actually create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. Reflecting on this, I decided to follow her advice and I noticed profound changes in my own dogs. Enhanced energy, healthier skin, and an overall younger demeanor. It's truly heartwarming to see them so vibrant and full of life. Go to badlandsfood.com slash hometown and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D dot com slash hometown. Now that's a very different interpretation of the clans or origin story than I've ever heard, and I would encourage you to research that on your own. And if you're unfamiliar with Fort Pillow, it was bad, like war crimes bad. Following the Emancipation Proclamation, the Union Army began enlisting black troops to fight the Confederacy. The South was outraged. They called the enlistment of black troops in a white man's war, quote, uncivilized. Fort Pillow contained 600 troops roughly half of which were black. When General Forrest showed up with 2,500 Confederate cavalry, he demanded the surrender of the overmatched Union Army. They refused. Confederate forces soon overwhelmed the undermanned fort, and what unfolded was one of the most tragic scenes of an already horrific war. One of Forrest's sergeants, Achilles V. Clark, wrote to his sisters two days later, Our men were so exasperated by the Yankees' threats of no quarter that they gave but little. The slaughter was awful. Words cannot describe the scene. The poor, deluded Negroes would run up to our men, fall on their knees, and with uplifted hands scream for mercy. But they were ordered to their feet and then shot down. The white men fared but little better. The fort turned out to be a great slaughter pen. Blood. Human blood stood about in pools, and brains could have been gathered up in any quantity. I, with several others, tried to stop the butchery and at one time had partially succeeded, but General Forrest ordered them shot down like dogs, and the carnage continued. Finally, our men became sick of blood, and the firing ceased. That there was a massacre following the Fort Pillow surrender is a matter most scholars agree on. As the historian Richard L. Futch puts it, 
The affair at Fort Pillow was simply an orgy of death, a mass lynching to satisfy the basis of conduct, intentional murder for the vilest of reasons, racism and personal enmity. The real question is whether Forrest ordered the slaughter, or if it just happened in the heat of the moment. Either way, it happened, and Forrest was in charge. As another historian, Andrew Ward, has said, whether the massacre was premeditated or spontaneous does not address the more fundamental question of whether massacre took place. It certainly did, in every dictionary sense of the word. Forrest claimed, and what would become the official Confederate story, that all of Union casualties had occurred in the heat of battle, with black soldiers firing to the end. One black lieutenant, Daniel V. Horn, of the 6th U.S. Heavy Artillery, agreed with at least part of Forrest's version, saying, There was never a surrender of the fort, both officers and men declaring there would never be a surrender, or ask for quarter. Additionally, at the end of the battle, the Union flag flew over Fort Pillow, suggesting no former surrender had taken place. But that does not mean individual soldiers, or even most of the garrison, did not give up arms and surrender during the course of battle. In fact, the evidence that this occurred is overwhelming. Additional accusations were made that Confederate soldiers had tortured their black prisoners from Fort Pillow, nailing them to barrels, burning them alive, even crucifying them. I haven't been able to find definite proof of these later accusations. It's an extremely ugly scene, and as Steve mentioned, it's one that haunted Forrest to the end of his life. And part of the really bizarre thing about Forrest's legacy is that after becoming the first Grand Wizard of the KKK, he actually became an advocate for black rights, as well as racial peace and equality. On one hand, he was reluctant to testify against former associates in the Klan, and on the other, he publicly campaigned against their agenda. When four black men were lynched for defending themselves against white aggression, Forrest wrote to the governor and volunteered to, quote, help exterminate those men responsible for the continued violence against the blacks. It's a dizzying turn of events, especially as while he was still officially with the Klan, that organization spread a reign of terror in the South in an attempt to suppress black voters in states like Georgia and Louisiana. In Louisiana, it's estimated that more than 1,000 black citizens were murdered to scare people away from the polls. From what I can tell, it really just looks like Forrest was a ruthless, racist, yet savvy chameleon with enough political genius to stay out of trouble. The last thing I'll mention about Forrest's legacy, and the thing that adds a whole new layer of complexity to his story, is the fact that he was a bona fide military genius. One of the things historians agree on with regard to Forrest is that he was arguably the greatest battlefield tactician on either side of the war. His natural intelligence for strategy and his ability to make split-second decisions to swing battles in his favor have in themselves become legendary. While Steve admires Forrest's military prowess and leadership, and has a somewhat different view of Fort Pillow than I do, he wanted to make it clear that he condemns the Klan as it exists today. Well, I have nothing that would, that I would want to glorify the Ku Klux Klan about. I don't know. I didn't live at that time, but I just know what I've read about the Klan, the first one in Pulaski, Tennessee, which is in the middle part of the state from here, where Forrest was, was elected the Grand Wizard. He was a well-known Southern general. and uh, But like I said earlier, he saw that uh, it was not good, some of the things that the Klan started doing, and that's the reason he disbanded the Klan. But the Klan is a very racist organization, 
and it still exists today, but it's gone through many versions of the Klan over these decades since the American Civil War. The Klan was created some about 160-some-odd years ago in Pulaski, Tennessee. So I wouldn't glorify the Klan one bit. But I do uh, admire General Nathan Bedford Forrest for being the man he was, that generally was, during the American Civil War. One of the great things about history is the fact that it evolves so many perspectives. And while Steve's view of Forrest and of his legacy doesn't entirely overlap with my own, I enjoyed my time at Parker's Crossroads, and I'd encourage you to visit and spend some time talking with Steve about the battle for Parker's Crossroads, and also its highly controversial hero. Before I left, I asked Steve about the continued use of the Confederate flag in America today. He made a couple things clear. One, the flag we know as the Confederate flag is actually the battle flag of the Confederacy, rather than the central flag. Two, he would not endorse using that flag due to all the racist connotations it has today. Once the session took place, they created the, the first national flag of the Confederacy. And the first national flag is, is the uh, stars and bars, is what it's referred to. It had the, the red and blue stripes, white stripes, and then it had a circle of stars. Some of them were seven, some 11, and then later on there were different versions. But that flag, it was, it was called the stainless banner. It, was, it had so much white on it initially that it, it didn't have the next flag, a stainless banner. But it looked so much like the, the American flag, or the U.S. flag, I should say, that they created another flag, and it's called uh, the stainless banner. And it had the St. Andrew's cross in one corner, then it was white. Well, out on the battlefield, that looked like a surrender flag. And so they said, we've got to change it again. And they put a red bar across one end of the of that flag. And then, so those were the national flags of the Confederacy. The, uh, the battlefield flag is which you see that the Ku Klux Klan uses and all the, the, the skinheads and all these racist people use is the battle flag. And that was carried by the regiments in battle along with the regimental flags. It has the St. Andrew's cross on it. And that's generally, that's what people, they don't know about the other flags. All they can think about is the battle flag. And that's what people who don't know any better thinks that was the Confederate flag. But it was used uh, in uh, first in the Eastern Theater of Virginia in, in those areas and then it finally made its way over here but most regiments didn't carry that flag as a regimental flag now some developed flags later that look like that so it's unfortunate that that's viewed as the confederate flag and i still see a lot of people flying the flag but i think it's a certainly a lost cause in that those who've now started telling the story, all they can see from that flag, they don't see, they don't recognize that people died under that flag, they suffered under that flag, and it means a lot to people. 
it's not meant as a racist symbol to many people. It's, it's a heritage kind of uh, thing to, to revere and honor the flag. But I couldn't advise anybody today to fly that flag because too many people recognize it for the racist symbol that they believe it should be recognized as. Steve also touched on the recent trend of removing Confederate statues throughout the South. In his mind, removing these statues only increases our chances of making similar mistakes in the future. They've removed anything that would have a hint of uh, the Confederacy or any hint of the of slavery. It, but history is so important and uh, we have to learn from our mistakes in history. And if you do away with history, there's not that learning process and the younger generation isn't getting a lot of history in the classroom. And so that makes these parks and these monuments so much more important is that you can see them, you can walk the hallowed ground where men died for whatever they believed in and then, but if you do away with those things, uh, it's, it, uh, it's, it will be tragic and history could repeat itself. I was listening to one of the TV shows, I guess on Sirius Radio or something, and they're talking about, the Skyrim had written a book about secession that states in the future between now and 2050 that states may want to secede from the Union. Well, we already fought that war and we saw the results of secession and it was proven as the result of that war that a states can't secede from our Union. But there's so many people who don't know and don't understand their history that allows them to start down that track, down that road of talking of secession and it just it really uh, hurts me to see that people are so uneducated when it comes to history that they will start thinking that is the thing to do yes this withdrawal or even a portion of a state withdraw from a portion of another state and join another a portion of another state to create another state or another nation it's ridiculous the American Civil War, the war between the states, or the Brothers' War, whatever you want to call it, terrible war where, where almost 700,000 Americans lost their life. It's just it's tragic. And when you combine all the other wars together up through the Persian Gulf War, more people died in the American Civil War than all the Revolutionary War and all the other wars combined. And it was uh, just such a tragic event uh, in America's history and one that we never, never want to repeat again. I'd like to thank Steve for joining me, and I'm going to leave you with an invitation from him to visit the Parker's Crossroads Visitor Center. I'd like to invite your listeners to come to Parker's Crossroads. They listen to your podcast. The Parker's Crossroads is... uh, in West Tennessee, if you travel I-40 across Tennessee, if you're going toward the east, you come to Memphis first and then Nashville. Well, in between Memphis and Nashville, at exit 108 on I-40, 
is the little town of Parker's Crossroads, which has had a lot of big history of the American Civil War. And we have nearly four miles of paved walking trails. We have a self-guided driving tour you can take here at Parker's Crossroads, but you should really begin your tour at the Parker's Crossroads Visitor Center where we have a, a bookstore. We have other things for sale here that would in, uh, be of interest to those of you who read history. And we also have an 18-minute video. We have some interpretive information. And then you can come here and begin your tour and spend an hour or two at Parker's Crossroads, Tennessee. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.